Our scripture passage for today comes from Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 46. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these of my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me, naked, and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment but the righteous into eternal life. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. Father, now we ask that your grace and your mercy would be upon us as we get ready to hear your word. Father, this has been such a trying season in the life of our families, in the life of our church, in the life of our country, in this world. Father, it just seems nonstop. And as we allow ourselves to linger on the consequences of it all, we can be filled with such anxiety and such frustration. God, we pray that you would help us to just truly be still right now and to know that you are God and that you would speak to us as the Lord who speaks into our lives so that through your word you can create in us hope that we cannot manufacture on our own. Father, we look to you to be our guiding light, to be our source of strength, and to be the hope that endures so that we can live bravely, boldly, and with valor. God, we ask that you would speak to us so that we can receive these things and be the people you've called us to be in this world. Father, we pray now that you would bless this message in spite of the one who brings it. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen and amen. You know, one of the most traumatic things that a child could suffer is to witness conflict in the home, specifically conflict between mom and dad. And when I say conflict, I don't mean these superficial, you know, uh, arguments or these kind of mundane discussions that get very, very uh, heated. I'm talking about full out war-like conflict. You know, many years ago when my oldest Kara was just around two, Sarah and I just had a massive meltdown with each other. I mean, massive meltdown. I mean, at that point, it was the perfect convergence of the stresses of ministry and parenthood that perfectly aligned, that created a very imperfect moment for us where we were just so vile and vitriolic to one another, accusing each other of such horrific things. And I still remember to this day Kara's response. 
And she was so overwhelmed by our, our shouts and our anger that she cried as if she'd broken a bone or something. She was just crying out with such terror. And as I look back on that time, it was clear to me that my daughter suffered a traumatic moment. And by God's grace, thankfully, Sarah and I have never had a moment like that. And of course, as your pastor, it is my prayer that none of our married folks in our NCF family would ever experience that kind of disharmony or disunity. But sad to say, to pray that kind of prayer comes across as too little too late when it comes to the harmony and unity of the church. What do I mean? Well, maybe you are aware, maybe you are not, but right now the state of the unity of the church is not in a good one. Apparently there is such conflict going on in the church to where one group on a divided issue accuses the other of being against God and vice versa. And conversely, that means that in their minds, they believe God is on their side. Let me get specific here. There are some people in the church today who will argue that the work of social justice is consistent with the Christian faith, whereas other people on the other side will say no. The work of social justice is more consistent to the atheistic views of Marxism or socialism. And it causes churches like ours who are stuck in the middle to decide, where do we stand on this issue? Because at some point we can't just sit idly by because we are a part of the body of Christ. We are part of the universal church to where we are therefore obligated in some way to stand on one side of the issue. But yet we also know the consequences of what happens when we do take such a stand, which means we are acknowledging that one side is right and therefore would be favored by God, whereas the other side is wrong and therefore not favored by God. But how could we ever say such a thing? Because we naturally assume that God has no favors. He doesn't favor one group of people over another, or does he? As we take a look at our passage for today, Matthew chapter 25, verses 35 to 41, excuse me, 36 to 41, we come to discover, maybe even to our shock, that yes, God does indeed play favorites. He does play favorites. In our passage, the group that God favors is identified as the sheep, and the group that he does not favor are known as the goats. And we hear that and we're like, how do we wrap our heads around that? How can we wrap our heads around the idea that God could ever play favors? And furthermore, how does that help us with this current dilemma that we're in with regard to the topic of social justice? Well, those are the questions that I hope to answer today as we take a look at our passage. And as we do, three things that I want to share with you from our passage. First, we're going to talk about the group God favors. The group God favors them. We're going to talk about the group God identifies with. And then we're going to end it with the group God works through. The group God favors, the group God identifies with, and finally the group God works through. Let's begin with the first point, the group God favors. So our passage begins in verse 31 where Jesus describes what's going to happen when all that we know as life ends, when the history of life ends. The technical term for it is the parousia, but you may recognize the more popular phrase of judgment day. Judgment Day. Ah, yes, Judgment Day. Whenever most people hear that phrase, almost immediately, you know, scenarios of darkness and gloom where you see kind of like in these Hollywood apocalyptic movies where natural disasters are everywhere, human civilization is unraveling right before our eyes. And indeed, whenever you read the Bible's description of Judgment Day, these terrifying cataclysmic scenarios are meant to be evoked into your mind. Yes, indeed. Unless, of course... You're one of those whom God favors. 
What do I mean by that? Well, let's read again verse 31 so we can begin the discussion. Read again with me where it says this. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Hmm. In commentating on this very verse, New Testament scholar Thomas Schreiner helps us understand what Jesus is saying here when he says the following, quote, As the Son of Man, he, Jesus, will judge the world at the final judgment. Then the new creation and the new exodus and the new covenant will be fulfilled in their entirety. Then all will see the King in his beauty. Furthermore, here another quote from another New Testament scholar, Jack Kingsbury, where he writes the following, quote, At that time, the exalted Jesus will return in power and splendor to preside over the final judgment to the salvation or condemnation of all. Indeed, Jesus' sudden appearance will signal the coming of God's great kingdom in glory, and he will reign supreme. What are these guys saying? Well, they're basically saying this, as terrifying as judgment they may initially seem, in actuality, it's a day of jubilation. It's a day of celebration. It's a day of wonderful joy, so much so that any human being, every human being, would naturally and instinctively want to participate in. Here's my proof to that interpretation. Take a listen to how the group of people who Jesus denies participating on this glorious day, the goats, Take a listen to their response to Jesus when he tells them, no, no, you can't partake on this day. Verse 44, they ask Jesus, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? You know, when you hear those series of questions, you can easily pick up the utter dismay, the massive disappointment that these people are feeling because they cannot enjoy this day that looks and appears and is so inherently enjoyable. So what does all this tell us? It tells us this. When Jesus finally one day sits on his glorious throne, it's going to be the greatest day ever. The festive joy that's going to be celebrated is going to be unlike any earthly party that was ever thrown. The bond of fellowship that's going to be experienced is going to be unlike any earthly friendship that has ever been forged. And the depth of love that people are going to enjoy and take such delight in is going to be so beyond any earthly romance, so much deeper than any family bond. It truly is going to be the best day Ever. And again, it doesn't matter if you're a spiritual person, a non-spiritual person, religious, non-religious, Christian, or not. Because the greatness of this day is such to which any human being, every human being, is naturally, instinctively going to want to participate and enjoy. And that very idea validates the significance of what the Bible says that God made man in his image. In other words, when the Bible says that God made man in his image, it assumes that they were created to enjoy this very day, that this was their essential destiny. Consider these words from theologian Herman Bobbink when he writes this, quote, Man is a creature who right from the beginning was created after God's image and likeness. And this divine origin and divine kinship he can never erase or destroy. Even though he has, because of sin, lost the glorious attributes of knowledge, righteousness, and holiness which lay contained in that image of God, nevertheless there are still present in him small remains of the endowments granted him in creation. And these are enough not merely to constitute him guilty, but also to testify of his former grandeur and to remind him constantly of his divine calling and heavenly destiny, end quote. God intended every human being to enjoy this day 
that is spoken of here in verse 31. But clearly, as we see in our passage, that isn't going to happen. Only a select group of humanity will enjoy it, which our passage identifies as the sheep, and the rest of everyone else are not going to enjoy it, i.e. the goats. They're going to have the opposite experience on this day. Now, I cannot tell you what the difference is, biologically speaking, between a goat and a sheep. But you know what? That's not really relevant because Jesus tells us the only difference that matters between them. According to our passage, the sheep represents the group of people who, according to verse 35 to 36, feed the hungry, give drink to the thirsty, clothing for the naked, shelter for the homeless, care for the widow and orphan, and visits the prisoner. In other words, the sheep are the community who do works of mercy, or to put it in biblical traditional terms, who do the work of social justice. These acts that I just described for you is how the Bible describes, especially in the Old Testament, works of social justice. And so whenever the church talks about works of social justice, this is what it's talking about. This is specifically what social justice is from the Bible's standpoint, and therefore the correct understanding of social justice. Now, it is so vital that you've picked up on how I kept emphasizing the sheep as the community that does these works of mercy and social justice, that it's the group who does it. Because one of the things that the Bible teaches us is that in order to do works of social justice, right, it has to be in the context of a community. I mean, just go back to how the sheep refer to themselves in verse 37. They ask the Lord, Lord, when did we see you hungry? When did we see you a stranger? When did we see you sick or in prison? Over and over, the sheep always refer to themselves in the first person plural as the we, as the community. And again, that just reiterates that Bible's understanding that in order to do the works of mercy, the works of social justice adequately and appropriately, it has to be done not at the level of a private individual, but in the context of community. Take a listen to this quote from theologian Henry Nouwen as he explains why this is so. He says this, quote, When there is no community that can mediate between world needs and personal responses, the burden of the world can only be a crushing burden. When the pains of the world are presented to people who are already overwhelmed by the problems in their small circle of family or friends or their business or classrooms, how can we hope for a creative response? What we can expect is the opposite of compassion, numbness and anger. How can we account for this numbness and anger? Numbness and anger are the reactions of the person who says, when I can't do anything about it anyhow, why do you bother me with it? Confronted with human pain and at the same time reminded of our powerlessness, we feel offended to the very core of our being and fall back on our defenses of numbness and anger. End quote. What's he saying? He's saying that the brokenness of the world is so overwhelming that it will crush the passion of any individual who wants to bring any true positive change. See, the only way, Christian, you and I can do any good work of social justice, any work of mercy, we have to be in the context of community. And if you think about it, it makes so much sense. Think of any massive challenge that you would ever have to face. You know you can only face these things when you have other people by your side to help you do it, right? So when you do works of mercy, you do need a community who can encourage you when you get discouraged because of the work. When you feel overburdened, you need a community to help you lift it up or when you get tempted to be complacent and too comfortable to where you neglect the call to do works of mercy, you need a community to keep you accountable. You need this kind of community, and that is what the sheep was. The sheep was the community who did works of mercy, biblical social justice, 
And because so, Jesus says, It is because of these things that indicate you in my eyes as those who are favored by me. Come now and enjoy this great day with me. Now you hear this and you think to yourself, well, why is it that Jesus puts so much emphasis on mercy and works of social justice? What's so significant? What's so special about that very thing to where Jesus would point to that as to indicate why he favors this group of people so much? That's a great question. And to answer, let me go to my next point, the group God identifies with. Starting in verse 34, Jesus does something very interesting. As he explains to the sheep why he's allowing them to enjoy this glorious day with himself, he doesn't say it's because you fed the hungry, you sheltered you know, the homeless, and you visited those who were in prison. No, he doesn't say that. He does something else that's kind of odd. He inserts himself as the recipients of all this work of mercy and social justice, right? Listen again to what he says, starting in verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Now, if you find that confusing, get in line, because apparently so did the sheep. Because look at their response starting in 38. When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? To which Jesus replies with these words, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Here we see something very astounding. Jesus Christ, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Alpha, the Omega, the Creator of all, voluntarily chooses to associate himself with the poor, the persecuted, and the prisoner. Isn't that weird? I mean, out of all of the people that God could have associated with, you know, the rich and the famous, the powerful and the pretty, the tough and the talented, he chooses not to associate with such people, but instead he chooses to associate with the poor, the unimpressive, the ugly, the downtrodden, the rejected, the forgotten. In fact, Jesus so strongly identifies with such people that as far as he concerns, how you treat such people is how you would treat him. That's how strong the bond of connection that he has with such people. And the question is why? Why does Jesus so strongly identify with people like this? Well, we get the answer back in 31. Because there you see that idea of Jesus sitting on his heavenly or glorious throne. Now here's the thing, folks. Just a little Bible trivia here. Whenever you read in the Bible of God sitting on his throne, it always means one thing only. It's the idea of God getting ready to execute judgment. Or to put it another way, God is getting ready to execute his justice. It's very similar, for example, when a judge walks into his or her courtroom. You know how when... A judge walks into the courtroom, everyone stands, the bailiff says, all rise. And no one sits down because the proceedings cannot begin until the judge sits on his or her throne, basically. Because when the judge sits is when, presumably, justice is going to be executed. And that's the same idea here, folks. When here we see our God, Jesus Christ, getting ready to sit on his throne, He's like a judge ready for the courtroom proceedings to begin. He is ready to execute justice, specifically his justice. And what this tells us, Christian, is that your God, by very nature, is a God of justice. He is a just 
God. That is by nature who he is, evidenced by what he does. That is who our God is. And when you understand that, it makes total sense that out of all the groups of people that God is immediately going to notice and gravitate towards and even associate with are the poor. The poor. Because think about it. Who are the ones out of all society that tend to be victimized and brutalized more than any other group? It's the poor. Who are the ones who are given unjust treatment more than any other group? It's the poor. Who are the ones who tend to get more falsely imprisoned or to get unnecessarily imprisoned than any other group? It's the poor. Consider these words from Pastor Tim Keller where he writes this, The Bible says that God is the defender of the poor. It never says he is the defender of the rich. Why? Injustice is easier to perform against people without the money or social status to defend themselves. The poor cannot afford the best legal counsel. The poor are mere often the victims of robbery and ordinarily law enforcement is much quicker and more thorough in its response to violence against the rich and power than against the poor. In short, since most people who are downtrodden by abusive power are those who had little to no power to begin with, God gives them particular attention and has a special place in his heart for them and because our God is a God of justice, he is naturally, immediately going to notice those who are being denied justice, those who are deprived of justice, and those who are victims of distorted justice. God is always going to notice the poor. I mean, for God to not notice the poor will be similar to like a great gardener not knowing one of his plants is dying in his own garden. It would be like a great maestro not noticing one of the instruments being out of tune in his symphony. It would be like a great parent not hearing the cry of their own baby in the next room. It just wouldn't happen. And that would never happen with God. God is always going to notice. He's always going to hear the cries of the poor. And when you let that sink in for just a moment, you begin to understand why he is the way he is towards the other group, the goats. Because who are the goats? The gro goats, excuse me, are the group, the community, that have no regard for the poor. And because they have no regard for the poor, that means they have no regard for God. Let me explain. If the poor are the ones who are the most uh, victims of injustice, right? That means to have no regard for the poor means you have no regard for justice. And if it is true that God by his nature is a just God, that means to not have any regard for justice means you have no regard for God himself. This is why Jesus takes it so personally in terms of how the poor are treated. Why he takes it in such a personal way. Right? To where he says, how you treat them is how you treat me. Because the poor represents the group that needs justice. Justice represents who God is. To where if you have no love for the poor, that means you have no love for justice. And if you have no love for justice, you have no love for God. If you have no desire to serve the poor, that means you have no desire to serve justice. And if you have no desire to serve justice, that means you have no desire to serve God. See, the whole point of this passage is not ultimately about the poor for the sake of the poor. This passage is ultimately about God, specifically your devotion to God, by loving what he loves and loving God for who he is. The God of justice, you see? Now, as you hear all this, right about now, you're probably wondering a series of questions. Questions that I would probably label the, but what about kind of questions. And if I had to take an educated guess as to the order of the flow of questions going through your head, it would probably follow a similar pattern like the following. Uh, 
pastor, I hear what you're saying, but what about these other pastors, these other prominent leaders of the church, you know, who are very suspicious about the work of social justice? You know, the very same pastors who say that we should just be preaching the gospel, right? Because after all, these pastors have a point. They do point out how in the history of the American church, there was a time where churches in America emphasized so much on the work of social justice that they ended up abandoning Orthodox Christianity and end up embracing secular ideologies like Marxism and, and liberalism, right? So how do we make sure that we don't promote social justice in a way that works against or even impugns the gospel itself? Hey, that's a great series of questions. Let me now try to answer it by going to the final point, the group God works through. So if you ever do a background study on this passage, you'll discover that there's a lot of controversy uh, surrounding it, specifically the parable here. And when I say controversy, I don't mean like scandalous controversy, but more controversy in terms of debate or disagreement. And really the area of debate and the point of disagreement is who exactly Jesus is referring to when he calls the least of these or his brothers. Who specifically is Jesus talking about? And apparently throughout the history of biblical scholarship, there's been two uh, different interpretations okay, that have been pretty much on par with one another. One group of biblical scholars will say that the least of these, and by the way, these are those who our passage identifies as the poor, the ones who are in prison, those who are hungry and thirsty. Uh, these biblical scholars will say this is just referring to the generic poor, right? Everyone today and back then who were downtrodden, oppressed, and forgotten, right? And with that understanding, the interpretation according to these scholars of this passage is God is calling God's people to make sure that we do works of mercy and social justice indiscriminately to make sure that we're caring for the poor, the downtrodden, the persecuted, the prisoner, and so forth. So that's one interpretation. The other group will say, no, 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 no. The least of these is not referring to the indiscriminate poor. It's actually specifically talking about a group of people Jesus has in mind, which are basically Christian missionaries. Okay, Christian missionaries who will go out into the nations to spread the gospel, and as they do, they face things like homelessness and hunger and thirst and getting falsely imprisoned, kind of like the Apostle Paul did throughout his missionary journeys. And so with that in mind, the interpretation of this parable is that God is going to judge the nations on how he treated his emissaries, his missionaries, and by refusing to care for their needs, that's essentially equivalent of rejecting the gospel and therefore why they're worthy of being judged of the fires of hell. Now here's the thing. These two interpretations have pretty much uh, been side by side for a long time. One group has not been able to topple the other, other because they both have very strong, substantive arguments. I, this past week, as I was reading this commentary, I was like, oh yeah, that makes sense. But then I read this commentary, I was like, oh, that makes sense too. And so the question is, which side is right? And the answer is quite simple. They're both right. They're both right. Let me show you what I mean. Let's read again our passage starting in verse 34 where it says this, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Now, if you're not careful, you can easily misinterpret these verses as if it's saying that the reason why God is giving the sheep the gift of eternal life, the gift of salvation, the inheritance, is because they earned it by doing works of mercy and social justice. In other words, the reason why this sheep get to enjoy this glorious day with Jesus is because of their works, specifically their social justice work, their works of mercy. But clearly, that is not what it says, because if you look 
exactly what it says in verse 34, you see that this gift of inheritance, this salvation, was already prepared for the sheep before the foundation of the world, before they did any work. So clearly, this is not teaching kind of a works-based, merit-based righteousness to where they are worthy of receiving the gift of salvation. That's not what it's saying. So the question is, what is this parable teaching? Well, you get the answer if you remember the parable that came right before this one that's recorded in verses 14 to 30. Because there you have the parable of the talents, okay? Where you have three servants of God giving different amounts of resources based on their ability. One servant is given five talents, another is given two talents, and the other is given one. And one of the main points, the main lessons of that parable is that a genuine Christian will always multiply themselves. A genuine Christian will always multiply themselves. Or to put it more simply, a genuine Christian would live their life like a missionary. Right? To where a Christian and a missionary are synonymous. They're basically the same thing. In other words, one of the ways that you know that you are a genuine Christian or a genuine heir who therefore is entitled to the inheritance of salvation is that you would seek to multiply your faith through the people around you to where hopefully by God's grace they would become Christians as well. And with that understanding in mind, you come into our parable and our passage, you can understand why Jesus gives the sheep the gift of salvation. Because when the sheep do the works of mercy, the works of social justice, they're showing their true colors as genuine Christians. Because what they're trying to do as they do works of mercy and social justice for the poor is that they're trying to multiply themselves through the poor. Right? And this is so consistent to the pattern that you see in the Gospels. Here's a pop quiz question. Who were the first missionaries that told people about Jesus, even before Jesus died on the cross? Do you know? Let me give you a couple examples. Do you know who the first missionary was to the Samaritans? It was a poor widowed woman who Jesus met at a well in John chapter 4. Who was the first missionary to the Gentiles in the Decapolis? It was a man who was imprisoned by demonic spirits right, in Mark chapter 5. Who was the first missionary to the Jews? to the Jews, excuse me, who lived around the pool of Siloam. It was a poor blind beggar that Jesus healed in John 9. Over and over you see this pattern that whenever Jesus did a work of mercy or justice for somebody, that person would always be the first to tell others about Christ. They were the first to go out and to spread the good news about Jesus Christ. You see, in our passage, Jesus is not specifically trying to identify who the least of these are, whether it's the poor generally or Christian missionaries specifically. Rather, he's trying to point out the goal that we are to have. We are to have the same goal as the sheep, which is what? That every time we do works of mercy, every time we do works of social justice, our goal should be that those who receive the benefits of mercy, those who receive the works of our social justice, should also become Christian themselves, that they should tell others about Jesus, that they would be missionaries, that they would receive Christ. Why is that? Because as we come to find in the New Testament, the group that God works through, tends to work through more than any other group, they are the poor, they are the persecuted, they are the prisoners. This is why the Apostle Paul says these words in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 to 29. 
Read it with me. Remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. Instead, God chose things of the world considered foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. And he chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chose things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. As a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. What's he saying? He's saying God chooses to work through those whom he shows mercy, specifically the poor, the persecuted, and the prisoner. And by saying this, this is not to say that the poor are inherently superior or more significant than the powerful and the elite and the educated. No. But it is to say that the poor, more than any other group, shows us how the gospel works because the poor, more than any other group, shows all human beings for who they truly are. Because who are we? You know who we are? We're all poor, spiritually speaking. We're all persecuted, demonically speaking. And we're all prisoners in our own sins. You see, the reason why God chooses to work through the poor to emanate the hope of the gospel is because the poor are able to reenact better than any other group the true human condition and therefore the only supernatural solution that is there for all the brokenness of the world. And that is through Jesus Christ. Because isn't that what the gospel teaches? Doesn't the gospel teach us that when Jesus died on the cross, he made us spiritually rich by giving to us his righteousness that he accrued for us by living a perfectly godly life? Doesn't the gospel also teach that when Jesus died on the cross, we got the full forgiveness of our sins, past, present, and future, so that our persecutor, Satan, has nothing to accuse us of, right? Doesn't the gospel also tell us that when Jesus died on the cross, he gave us the gift of the Holy Spirit, so we're no longer dominated by our sins, we're set free, we're no longer prisoners of guilt and shame? You see, the poor, more than anyone, show the universal condition of every person, no matter if they're rich or good-looking or powerful or, or educated or elite. Right? The poor, more than anyone, shows the true condition of the human heart and it displays in HD color the power of the gospel to work in every human heart. And this, my friends, is why the church does work of social justice. Because we are essentially reenacting what God does for every human heart through the power and preaching of the gospel. So you see, when the church does work of social justice, it's not in spite of the preaching of the gospel, it's because of the preaching of the gospel. So the question therefore is, do we as a church do the works of social justice? Absolutely. And the reason why we do it is because of the power of the gospel that comes through the preaching of the gospel. I hope and pray, Christian, that this clarifies the, all the dilemma and the confusion that is going on right now within the church universal and that you will remember this more than any other time so that we can know what we must do and focus on what is called upon us by our God. Let's do works of mercy and justice so that we can preach the gospel faithfully. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would help us to truly understand it. Lord, we are living in such confusing times where the enemy is trying to cause so much confusion and distraction to where we can let loose the grip of our call to be outwardly compassionate and to be faithful as being stewards of the gospel. 
Father, I just pray that with all the social media noise that the church is receiving, that we would stay true by clinging to what the scriptures teach and being true to the message of the gospel. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters, especially now as they get exposed to so many things going back and forth within the context of the universal church. Father, steady our hearts and keep our minds sharp so that we would know what it is we are to do and what we are not, and always to make the main thing the main thing. Help us to do this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.